Good morning. My name is Rich, and I am uh, the pastor of the Inclusive Collective, which is a camp ministry connected to Urban Village. And I'm excited that Hannah invited me to preach uh, this morning. Um, also, Juan Pablo just gave a testimony, and I'm like, well, there's the sermon, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, took me, God took me out of the ashes and put me on solid ground. Amen. I can sit down. <laughs> Um, thank you for sharing, Juan Pablo. And also, what a great spiritual practice, right? To write a letter to yourself at a key point in your life. I think I'm going to do that um, soon. Thank you. I've also never preached with a wall of shoes behind me. And also, this is the most urban village thing I've ever seen. A purple sequin altar cloth, <laughs> right? Um, but it's good to be with y'all, friends. Happy Easter. Uh, would you pray with me? God, thank you for this morning of new life. Thank you for this morning of uh, Pablo's story, the way that he shared it uh, with us and for what it um, does in us. And thank you for all of these people in this room. This morning, may we be awake to your presence and may uh, all of our, our thoughts and all of our wonderings and may the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, be aligned with you, be connected with who you are and who you are calling us to be. And when they are not, remind us that you are a God of innumerable chances and a God of grace. Amen. Brian Stevenson, uh, anyone know Brian Stevenson? A couple of folks raising their hand. He's the author of the book Just Mercy, and he's also the founder and director of the Equal Justice Initiative um, in Montgomery, Alabama. And he visited Germany a few years back, and he tells a story about his visit to Germany and how he was with some friends traveling around to all sorts of places. And everywhere he went, he was surprised by the fact that there were Holocaust memorials everywhere. Created all over, in small towns and large cities and rural villages, they were everywhere, scattered across the whole country. And so he began to ask his friends he was there with, what's up with this? Why are they everywhere? Why are they in every place? And his friends looked at him sort of, and said sort of matter-of-factly, like, of course we have them everywhere, because if we do not uh, deal with the past, if we do not publicly name the past, then we can't move forward to the future. If we don't move, deal with the past, we can't move forward to the future. And they've literally taken places that used to be death factories and made them into monuments and memorials that point them on a new path and in a new direction. And so Stevenson's mind went to the US, where he's from. He lives in Alabama. And he began to wonder why it is in the U.S. that we have so few uh, memorials and monuments dealing with our history of racism. Uh, they, they, we have some big ones, right, and you can name some of them, but in terms of places, no one who visits the U.S. would ask the question he did when he went to Germany. And um, he began to think maybe one of the reasons why uh, our country is still infected by racism is because we haven't dealt with the past in a public way. And so uh, his mind, though, went to a more uh, particular context of racism because he is a lawyer who specializes in overturning death penalty cases. And so his mind went to lynching, which is uh, connected to what he does for a living. And he did a lot of research, and he discovered that between 1877 and 1950, there were over 4,400 black women, men, and children lynched by mobs throughout the South and the whole country in over 800 counties. 800 counties. And then he did some more research and he recognized that there is not one major memorial or monument 
to those killings in this country. Not one. But on April 26th, in just a few short weeks, the National Center, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice will open in Montgomery, Alabama, the heart of the American South, where many of these lynchings happened. And there will gather the roots and Usher and Kirk Franklin and Ava DuVernay and Marion Wright Edelman and William Barber. And they will gather there to celebrate the opening of this remarkable monument. You'll see it on the screen, I think, Caleb. This is the new monument. So it, there will be an awning, and 800 columns will hang representing the 800 counties, and the names will be inscribed uh, on them of all the people who were killed. And this is, these are just the monument, these are just the killings, right, from that time span I gave you, not including before or after even up until today. And so this will stand in the, in a, on, a, on a, a hill overlooking the whole city of Montgomery. And in addition to all the 800 columns, on the outside there will be replicas of every single column. And the goal is to get every county where these lynchings happen to take the replica and put it in their county. And so then scattered all across the country will be memorials to these people. In addition to the, the, the columns, inside the memorial there will be soil samples, I think there's a picture of it too, from every single county where the lynchings happened. And Stevenson says this about the soil. In this soil, there is the sweat of the enslaved. In the soil, there is the blood of victims of racial violence and lynching. There are tears in this soil from all those who labored under the indignation and humiliation of segregation. But in this soil, there is also opportunity for new life, a chance to grow something hopeful and healing for the future. Easter is about the movement from cross to resurrection. Easter is about the movement from the cross, a place intentionally designed to inflict death and deal shame, to the resurrection and experience of new life. Easter is about that movement from cross to resurrection, and the National Memorial for Peace and Justice seeks to be caught up in that same movement from cross to resurrection. It is taking places where people were literally killed and shamed publicly and turning them into monuments that amplify the voices of those meant to be silenced. It exists to make us take a hard look at yesterday and today and the things happening today and imagine a new future together in a city that was known for the lynching of black folks. Some of our country's most powerful black artists and intellectuals and change agents will gather on April 26th to proclaim that the lives of those lynched matter, that black lives matter today, and they will invite us to envision a new future together. That is on the ground movement from cross to resurrection. And Easter is about that very movement. But it can become easy to imagine that um, this movement is about a one-time event, a singular happening, an anomaly that proves Jesus' divinity. But the claim of Easter is not stuck in the first century, right? It's not stuck in the first century. In fact, the claim of Easter, this move from resurrection, is a, is a model, a blueprint a naming of a reality that already exists all around us. Think about it with me. In our bodies, 300 million cells die every minute, and yet our resilient bodies produce new ones to replace them. We have food in the ground that's alive, and then we pick it, and it's dead on our plate. We eat it, and it gives us life. We have the seasons, right? Things are thriving in the summer. They begin to wilt in the fall. They die in the winter. Winter's real long here. 
They die in the winter, and then they are reborn in the spring. This move from death to life, from cross to resurrection, is stamped all over the place. It's happening all over the place. And Jesus' move is a naming of that very reality. And so we have this passage that Zinnia read from the Gospel of Luke, and we hear the story of Jesus' move from cross to resurrection. Three days earlier, he had been crucified, and then on this morning, these women go to the tomb to deal with Jesus' dead body and to tend to Jesus' dead body. But when they arrive, they see two brightly lit men who say, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. The women go and they tell the disciples what happened, but the disciples don't believe them. Hashtag mansplaining. (laughs) And so Peter had to go see for himself. And he sees the empty tomb. He's still got some trouble believing. A lot of them have some trouble believing, but eventually they get it. This story is the blueprint. This story is the model Jesus' movement from cross to resurrection. And I deeply believe in this story, and I believe that it is important But I think using this passage solely to prove that Christianity is right does a grave disservice to the power of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus has way more on offer for us than just that. And in the story of Jesus' resurrection, we do find this, of Jesus going from death to life, but that is uh, first-level stuff. Otis Moss, the pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ on the south side, warns us against staying at the first level. And instead, he invites us to see the double and triple entendres, or meanings of the text to see what things happen whenever we get beneath the surface because there's something deeper and more powerful that sits beneath the surface. And I want us to go deeper, and I want us to dig deeper because I want the move from cross to resurrection to matter more than once a year. I want it to be more than an excuse to buy a new bow tie, which I did. I want it to be more than an excuse to drink mimosas, which I will do. I haven't yet, I promise. I want this story, y'all, to hit us at our guts. I want it to wake us up to the truth that we are loved beyond measure, and I want it to change our lives. Our systems, our city, our, our country is in desperate need of this story to hit at a deeper place. And I am in desperate need of this story to do more than stay on the surface. Jesus' move from cross to resurrection, thanks be to God, does go deeper. Jesus' resurrection, when we dig into the text a little bit, Jesus' resurrection offers us a blueprint for our systems. So let's look into this story, and let's look in the context. Often when when we divorce the stories we read from the context in which they happen, we miss a lot of stuff. So let's look at this passage. In the context of Jesus' move from cross to resurrection was the Roman Empire. You can see the map, I think, up here. Maybe, in a few minutes. Hopefully. (laughs) There it is. Okay, so that's modern-day country's name. But the Roman Empire is vast, right? It's vast and powerful. And it's ruled by Caesars who viewed themselves as sent by God, directly by God, in order to create a prosperous and flourishing world. Prosperous and flourishing, right? Prosperous and flourishing for some. And the way that they would create this supposed utopia was through violence. Anyone who got in their way, anyone who was a disruptor, was killed through crucifixion. Theologian James Cone talks about how crucifixion, the the tie between crucifixion and lynching, they're both meant to not only kill, but they're also meant to shame and to say to anyone else, you need to have fear of the empire. You need to fear us because your life is at stake. And so the Romans would take over your community, and then they would say, it's the Roman way or no way. It's the Roman way or no way, and if you got in the way, 
crucifixion. And so in this context, Jesus is not just preaching spiritual niceties that end up on our t-shirts. Jesus is preaching the radical coming of the kingdom of God, which is a direct affront to the kingdom of the Roman Empire. And so Jesus is preaching about a kingdom that everyone's invited to, a kingdom where there is equity and justice, a kingdom where there was joy and life, a kingdom where hearts are healed and neighborhoods are restored, this beautiful kingdom that is at odds with the powerful Roman Empire. And this kingdom is a direct threat because in Rome, there is only one for, room for one kingdom. That's the kingdom of the Caesar, and that is a kingdom marked by oppressive systems and extreme wealth and abusive power. So with this context in mind, we know that Jesus was a threat to the Roman Empire and, and the religious authorities, right? And so he's killed on a cross because the way you deal with threats is to put them to death and publicly shame them. The way you deal with disruptors and create harmony is through crucifixion, but Jesus' way is different. Jesus' way involves radical love and peace and inclusion, and so the resurrection becomes more than simply Jesus going from death to life. That's important. But the resurrection becomes an affirmation that Jesus' way is better than the Roman way. And so Mary, when she proclaims in the Gospel of John, I have seen the Lord, she's making a bold claim that Jesus' way wins out over the Roman way. Jesus' way wins out over the destructive, oppressive systems of the empire. And so when Jesus moved from cross to resurrection, we not only see Jesus making that move, but we get a blueprint for our own systems. And we see that systems can move from death-dealing and oppressive to life-giving and creating human flourishing. And I'm not being naive here, okay? I'm not saying that all will be well all the time. I'm not trying to spout some pie-in-the-sky theology that there will be uh, no more pain and injustice. I'm not saying that. In fact, there will be, right? There will be more gun violence and there will be more actions of white supremacy. Even this past week or a couple of weeks with the death of Stefan Clark, the officer who killed Alton Sterling, um, lack of charges. There will be more women who have to say me too, but I also deeply believe this, that Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' move shows us that God will have the last word and that God will get God's way. We will witness teenagers rising up to fight gun violence. We will witness the growth of the Black Lives Matter movement. We will see a new, that a new day is on the horizon in the words of Oprah. We will see these things come into clearer view. And as Dr. King said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And we will need to be arc benders. But Jesus' move from cross to resurrection shows us what is possible. In the midst of all that is happening in our country and in our world, that gives me a dose of much-needed hope. Hope that we will need if we're going to be co-creators of God's kingdom, if we're going to be co-creators that help us move from cross to resurrection. Jesus' move shows us a blueprint for our systems. Jesus' resurrection also, though, shows us a model, a blueprint for our lives. We talked about the context of the story from Luke, but now I want us to dig into one particular character from the story of Luke, Mary Magdalene, or Mary of Magdala. She's one of those first women who go to the tomb on that Easter morning, and she's the one who proclaims in John's gospel, 
I have seen the Lord. But who is Mary Magdalene? Well, she's likely the daughter of a single mother. She likely never had a husband and didn't have children. How do we know this? Because we see in the passage, in this context, women were identified by the, by the men they were connected to. So we see it in this passage. Can you pull up the second part of Luke, I think? Um, so you see it right there. Uh, Mary, the mother of James, and Joanna, she's named earlier in the Gospel of Luke as Joanna, the wife of Chusa. And so when women are mentioned in Scripture, they're usually attached to the men they were connected to because of this time period and the abusive system of women. But Mary, that's never mentioned. She becomes Mary of Magdala, which is a fishing village on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And so that, and that becomes Mary Magdalene, right? And so we know that in a, in a society where your only worth is what men you're connected to, Mary is known as Mary of Magdala, and she's not connected to a man. Those are big strikes against her in this society. The other thing we know is the Bible talks about Mary as being plagued by seven demons. And in the first century, demons could be in some sort of spiritual power or spiritual being, but they were also the, the problematic way people talked about undiagnosed diseases, addiction, or mental illness. We also learn from the Bible that Mary, this is, there's all sorts of theories about this, and is she connected to this other Mary or not? She could be a prostitute. And perhaps she didn't long for that career, but was forced into it to pay the bills. So we're talking about one hell of a life, right? A woman who was a single, who was um, the, the daughter of a single mom, who didn't have kids and wasn't married, in a culture that abuses women, possibly in a profession that was looked upon with scorn, and struggling with an undiagnosed disease, mental illness, or addiction. Mary's life was a struggle. Mary's life, all of this stuff must have been death dealing and shaming for her. Mary's whole life was a cross. But then she encounters Jesus and enters into his community. His community of men and women that's closest followers, and Mary becomes a close follower. And not only a close follower, it says in the Gospel of Luke, we don't often pay attention to this, that Mary and some of these other women, they're the ones who bankroll Jesus' ministry. All right? So we have these women. And Mary, she especially gets a lot of screen time in Jesus' last days. And in Jesus' last days, she is always around. And she remains faithful to the end. So whenever a lot of the men go off and run and hide and deny, Mary is there and Mary is there and Mary is there. And then she's the one who goes to the tomb that morning and she preaches the first Easter sermon. I have seen the Lord. And notice here that she doesn't make a sort of objective theological claim. She doesn't say Christ is risen. That's great. She makes this deeply personal theological claim. I have seen the Lord. Do you see the difference there? It's, it's not some sort of abstract, heady theological claim, but it is a deeply personal one. And that's what I'm saying, to get below the first level and get to something deeper, to where, to where we can say more than just a theological argument. We can do more than Christian apologetics, but we can say and be able to shout, I have seen the Lord and it's actually made a difference in my life. Maybe that's what we need more than arguing about if Christianity is right. She goes from being ostracized by society in so many ways to becoming a follower of Jesus and the first preacher of the resurrection. Sure, Mary's life did not, was not all peachy from there. She didn't have a problem-free life, but we can see that in so many ways her life was it caught up in this movement from cross to resurrection. As an aside here, if I were more verbose than I already am, I would preach two other sermons. 
So these are them in short, very short form. One, every Easter, seriously, every Easter, we need to pause, and I've already alluded to it, but I want to say it explicitly. We need to pause and remember that the first preacher of the resurrection was a woman. Amen? Not a man. The first preacher of the resurrection was a woman, and she comes out and says, I have seen the Lord. So anyone who says women can't preach, you need to go read this passage. Amen? All right. First sermon. The second one is this, is that whenever Mary and the woman go back to the disciples, and they say, hey, Jesus is resurrected. I've seen the Lord. The disciples' uh, first response, you see it in this text, um, it says uh, an idle tale or nonsense. That's the way we translate it into proper English for the Bible. But guess what? The disciples were not proper people. The disciples didn't use words like, I think that's an idle tale. They didn't say that, right? The Greek word is leros. The best translation for that, I didn't realize the kids are going to be here, so I'm going, to, I'm going to filter my language a little bit. The best translation for that is, that's BS. Okay? So when the, the, the women come back to the, from the tomb and they say to the disciples, hey, Jesus is resurrected. Their response is, that's BS. Um, and that, for me, there's two things. One, if you've got some skepticism this morning about this stuff, and if you cuss a lot, there's room for you at the table, too. Okay, but I said I wasn't going to preach those sermons. I'm not going to preach them. So back to Mary. So Mary. Mary goes from cross to resurrection and gives us this blueprint for what can happen in our lives, too. Because you see, Jesus' resurrection does have a powerful word for our systems, but Jesus' resurrection also has a powerful word for our personal lives. Yes, we desperately need our systems to go from death to life, but there are some of you in this room, some of us in this room, who desperately need parts of our lives to go from cross to resurrection. We desperately need hope for new life on this very day, right? We can become people because Jesus wants that. We can become people who get off the cross of negative self-talk, the cross of addiction, and we're all addicted to something. The cross of jobs that suck the life out of you, the cross of feeling stuck, the cross of loneliness, the cross of toxic relationships, the cross of shame, the cross of hiding who you are, we can get off that. And we can move to resurrection, to believing that we are known and loved beyond measure, not in spite of who we are, but because of who we are. We can move from cross to resurrection to knowing that we are valuable and we are enough, we can move from cross to resurrection to moving into flourishing, healthy community that supports us and helps us deal with our stuff. We can move from cross to resurrection and we can imagine a new life that we never ever thought was possible. Mary of Magdala moved from the cross of exclusion and shame and moved into the resurrection of being included in a community and being the first preacher of the good news. And the good news is that we are being invited and led into that very same rhythm from death to life, from ashes to higher ground. Jesus offers us a model for how to move from cross to resurrection. And I deeply believe in the power of resurrection, friends. And I don't believe in it because I've read about it. And I don't believe in it because I went to seminary and studied it. I believe in it because I've experienced it over and over and over. Resurrection is not a one-time event, but it's a thing that happens to us over and over and over. And some of you have heard me tell this story before, but I'll tell it again because the, one of the most powerful experiences of resurrection happened to me just a few years ago. Freedom. 
freedom, freedom. I was sitting in my apartment, old apartment on the north side of Chicago, in an Ikea chair that took way too long to put together. And I was sitting there praying, freedom, freedom, freedom. And this had become my mantra, my prayer for months. And I kept tossing it up to God emphatically and consistently and hoping that God would move. And I was hoping that that word would move from a simple word to a profound and powerful experience. And why freedom? Because I had spent a long part of my life living life in the fetal position. That's the opposite of freedom. I lived it with clenched fists and with knees tucked tight and with body tight. You see, growing up gay and closeted and Christian and wanting to be a pastor in the South, one of these things is not like the other. (laughs) It's not an easy place to be in. And it had given me some really potent skills, namely the skills of suppressing and hiding a key part of who I was. And as I honed and perfected those skills, I went tighter and tighter into the fetal position. And sure, I had glimpses of freedom and glimpses of lightness, but for so much of my life, I was just living so tight. And so I prayed, freedom, 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 because I had this strong hunch that God had more on offer for me. I believed that God had more on offer, that God didn't want me to live in the fetal position, but God wanted me to live with arms stretched wide, with the wind at my back, with liberation. And so I prayed, freedom, 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 move, God, please move, please move. And most days, I would finish my prayer, and I would think, well, not much happened there. Not much happened there. But then one day, I remember sitting in my chair, sitting in my chair, desk chair, and all of a sudden, my body felt light. And it was as if God was saying to me, almost in an audible voice, hey, it's okay. I've got you. I've got you. It was the strangest, most mystical experience that I've ever had. I haven't had one like it since. I haven't had one like it before. But in that moment, I knew that it was going to be okay. In that moment, I felt a surge of life and power and joy and verve like I never had before. I felt the power of the Holy Spirit pulsing through my bones. I was experiencing resurrection, new life. The closet had been a a cross for me, a death-dealing and a shaming place. It had held me back, suppressed the person I was created to be, and peddled lies to me about myself and about God. But thanks be to God, I moved from that cross to resurrection to gaining the courage to living as my true self, free and light and liberated. And sure, I've got some scars and I still get bumps and bruises, but it's nothing compared to the incredible freedom that I've experienced from cross to resurrection. And so friends, Easter is about the movement from cross to resurrection. Jesus made the move. Systems are making the move. We are making the move. From bondage to freedom, from death to new life, from cross to resurrection. Can you feel it?